Gastroenterology and Nutrition. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the August 2011 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.naspigan.org. The August issue is headlined by an invited review, entitled Mechanisms of Lipotoxicity in NAFLD and Clinical Implications by Ibrahim, Coley, and Gores from the Mayo Clinic. This is a good comprehensive review of NAFLD, the most common chronic liver disease of children in the United States today. The review discusses the known and proposed cellular mechanisms of lipotoxicity currently under investigation, focusing mainly on the role of free fatty acids and the ways in which they induce the endoplasmic reticulum stress response and activate the mitochondrial cell death pathways. The authors also describe the lysosomal dysfunction produced by free fatty acids that modifies the death receptor gene expression causing lipoapoptosis. They stress that the accumulation of triglyceride in the liver is not in and of itself hepatotoxic, but is a marker for excess free fatty acids in the liver, the true toxic agent. The authors admit that there are no therapies proven to halt the progression of NAFLD, but they do highlight potential therapeutic targets, including the apoptotic pathways, the C-June N-terminal kinase, and the endoplasmic reticulum stress pathways. The first original GI article is entitled Epidemiology of Inflammatory Bowel Disease. Is there a shift toward onset at a younger age? by Christian and colleagues from the Swiss IBD cohort study group. There's also a nice editorial commentary by Kundi, Prasad, and Kugathasan. We are all aware that there are increasing numbers of pediatric patients being diagnosed with IBD. These authors looked at whether the increase in their population was a consequence of an earlier age of onset of these diseases. They performed a complex statistical analysis of the patients in the Swiss IBD cohort study, looking at patients enrolled since 1980 and stratifying them according to diagnosis of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, age at onset of first symptoms, and age at diagnosis. To their surprise, their analyses showed that age at disease onset has actually increased significantly since 1980. Male sex was associated with an increase in age at disease onset and birth in Switzerland with a decrease in age at onset. These results do not support the hypothesis that disease onset and either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis is occurring at a younger age. The authors conclude that there is, in fact, a true increase in incidence of these conditions in children, not just an earlier presentation. The next article is entitled, Identification of Specific Foods Responsible for Inflammation in Children with Eosinophilic Esophagitis Successfully Treated with Empiric Elimination Diet by Kagalwala and colleagues. This paper is accompanied by a very nice commentary from Dr. Philip Putnam. As in many centers, the authors of this paper treat eosinophilic esophagitis with a six-food elimination diet that includes the six most common food antigens, cow milk, soy, wheat, egg, peanuts, tree nuts, and seafood. 
Many practitioners have concluded that this elimination diet, regardless of the patient's specific IgE antibody reactivities, induces remission in a significant proportion of children. The purpose of this study was to see if, after inducing histologic remission by a six-food elimination, whether the specific food antigens responsible for the eosinophilic esophageal inflammation could be identified by serial reintroduction of single antigens. The authors reviewed 36 EOE patients who had achieved remission with the six-food elimination diet, who then completed a subsequent single-food reintroduction plan. Repeat upper endoscopy and biopsy were performed after each single-food introduction. Recurrence of esophageal eosinophilia after a food reintroduction was taken as proof that that particular antigen was the cause of eosinophilic esophagitis. In 72% of the patients, one food was identified as the precipitant of EOE. Two foods were identified in 8%, three foods in 8%, and in 11%, or three patients, none of the foods caused a relapse. The most common foods were cow's milk in 74%, wheat in 26%, egg in 17%, soy in 10%, and peanut in one case, or 6%. They concluded that serial single-food reintroductions after histologic remission on the six-food elimination diet was useful in identifying specific triggers and in designing maintenance diets for the majority of their EOE patients. next article is entitled, Serum Concentrations of Vascular Endothelial Growth Factor and Transforming Growth Factor Beta-1 During Exclusive Enteral Nutrition in IBD by Wodrejewicz and colleagues. Exclusive enteral nutrition is an effective method of achieving remission in inflammatory bowel disease, but the mechanism is still poorly understood. It is known that enterotherapy is associated with a decrease in inflammatory mediators. The objective of this study was to assess the influence of enteral nutrition therapy on serum vascular endothelial growth factor and transforming growth factor beta-1, two anti-inflammatory mediators in children and adolescents with IBD. 39 children and adolescents with newly diagnosed and previously untreated IBD 24 with Crohn's disease and 15 with ulcerative colitis, and 25 healthy controls were en enrolled. Some of these patients had fairly severe disease. Vascular endothelial growth factor and TGF-beta-1 were assessed at baseline and after two and four weeks of therapy in enteral nutrition patients, but at baseline only in the controls. At baseline, there was an increase in serum vascular endothelial growth factor in the Crohn's disease group, compared with ulcerative colitis and controls. There was an increased serum TGF-beta-1 in the ulcerative colitis patients, compared to Crohn's disease and controls. During enteral nutrition therapy, vascular endothelial growth factor decreased in the ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease groups. TGF-beta-1 TGF increased in the Crohn's disease group, but decreased in the ulcerative colitis group. TGF-beta-1 concentrations in the Crohn disease patients correlated directly with daily protein and energy intakes. The Crohn disease patients achieved disease remission faster than the ulcerative colitis patients, and their weight gain was better than patients with UC. 
The authors conclude that the differential effectiveness of enteral nutrition in achieving remission in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis may result from specific differences in the resulting stimulation of growth factor production. Enteral nutrition stimulated TGF-beta-1 production in Crohn's disease, but not in ulcerative colitis, which possibly caused the higher effectiveness of enteral nutrition in the Crohn's disease patients. The next article is entitled Metoclopramide versus Ondansetron for the Treatment of Vomiting in Children with Acute Gastroenteritis by Alanzari and colleagues. These authors compared the efficacy and safety of ondansetron versus the less expensive metoclopramide in treating healthy children with persistent vomiting associated with a bout of acute gastroenteritis. The study was double-blind and included 167 children of median age three years attending a city clinic. The children had all failed a trial of oral rehydration and were felt to need IV fluids to get around their frequent vomiting. The children were randomized to receive a single dose of intravenous ondansetron or metoclopramide at the start of IV fluid therapy. Cessation of vomiting was achieved in 81% of the ondansetron and 72% of the metoclopramide groups. The difference between the treatments was not significant. Mean time to complete cessation of vomiting was 39 minutes for ondansetron and 61 minutes for metoclopramide, with such a wide range in both groups that there was no statistical significance. The mean length of stay was about nine hours in both groups. The revisit time, readmission rate, and frequency of diarrhea after discharge were similar in the two treatment groups. No adverse reactions were identified. The authors concluded that IV metoclopramide did not differ from IV ondansetron in the treatment of vomiting. Unfortunately, the authors did not include a control group that received IV fluid alone, so we can't really conclude that either medication was more effective than just rehydration. The next article is entitled, Oral Rehydration Solution Containing Zinc Does Not Reduce Duration or Stool Volume in Acute Diarrhea in Hospitalized Children, by Wada and colleagues. The World Health Organization recommends oral zinc as an adjunct to oral rehydration therapy for acute childhood diarrhea. The authors wondered whether mixing zinc in with the oral rehydration solution could be a simple way of simultaneously providing both of these interventions to children with diarrhea. They performed a double-blind, randomized controlled trial of oral rehydration solution supplemented with 40 milligrams per liter of zinc compared to oral rehydration solution alone in nearly 1,000 previously healthy, well-nourished children and toddlers with acute diarrhea. They found no difference between the stool volumes or the time to recovery between the two groups. Unfortunately, what they discovered was that the total amount of zinc ingested by the treated group was well below the WHO guidelines for zinc, even on day one of therapy. Zinc intake decreased significantly during the several days of rehydration as the amount of ORS ingested fell. The findings do not support a change from using zinc syrup or dispersible tablets for treatment of acute diarrhea in childhood, but indicate that adding it to the rehydration solution is not an effective means of therapy. The first Hepatology and Nutrition original article is entitled Characteristics of Idiosyncratic Drug-Induced Liver Injury in Children, Results from the Drug-Induced Liver Injury Network Prospective Study 
by Molliston and colleagues from the Drug-Induced Liver Injury Network. The Drug-Induced Liver Injury Network prospective study is a longitudinal, multi-center study designed to determine the etiologies, risk factors, and outcomes of suspected DILI. Between September 2004 and September 2009, 30 children ages 2 to 18 years with suspected drug-induced liver injury were enrolled and studied for at least six months. The mean age was 14 years and 70% were female. Antimicrobials and central nervous system agents were the most commonly implicated drug classes, 50% and 40% respectively, with minocycline, isoniazid, azithromycin, atomoxetine, and lamotrigine as the leading agents. Nearly half the children had been exposed to five or more concomitant drugs in the two months before drug-induced liver injury. Median time from drug initiation to symptom onset was 32 days. Median peak liver chemistries were AST 503, ALT 727, and alkaline phosphatase 331. Total bilirubin was 3.9 milligrams per deciliter. Autoantibodies were found in 64% of affected children. Liver injury pattern was hepatocellular in 78, cholestatic in 13, and mixed in 9. The drug-induced liver injury episode was scored as mild in 32, moderate in 44, and severe in 20%. It was fatal in one patient. Causality assessment was definite in one-third, very likely in one-third, probable in 16%, possible in 8, and unlikely in 4. 7% had persistent liver test abnormalities at six-month follow-up, suggesting chronic drug-induced liver injury. Liver biopsies from 12 children most frequently demonstrated chronic hepatitis or bile duct injury. There's a lot of good information about drug-induced liver injury in this paper, which should be very helpful to GI, hepatology, and primary care pediatricians alike. I plan to put this one in my teaching file. The next article is entitled, Ultrasonographic Quantification Estimate of Hepatic Steatosis in Children with NAFLD by Shannon and colleagues. The aim of this study, with the odd conundrum in the title of quantitative estimation, was to evaluate the utility of ultrasonography in measuring hepatic steatosis. 208 consecutive pediatric patients with biopsy-proven NAFLD were studied. Hepatic ultrasound was performed within one month of liver biopsy, and steatosis scored on a, one, on a zero to three scale based on echogenicity, visualization of vasculature, parenchyma, and diaphragm. The ultrasound score was compared to the histologic features described by Brunt's classification. 69% of the patients had moderate to severe steatosis on histology. Ultrasonographic steatosis score correlated well with histologic grading, especially for moderate to severe steatosis. The ultrasound did not correlate significantly with inflammatory activity or stage of fibrosis. Serum AST and ALT were not associated with histological grade of steatosis and showed no correlation with ultrasound. These authors have shown in this large prospective pediatric study that ultrasound can be used to evaluate hepatic steatosis. However, in light of the invited review earlier in this issue, indicating that triglycerides are not pathologic, one wonders in the long run whether getting an ultrasound score will allow the physician to avoid liver biopsy 
or be important in any other clinical respect in NAFLD. Biopsy is the only way to estimate fibrosis and inflammation, which are the real problems in NAFLD, not the amount of triglyceride in the liver. The last hepatology and nutrition article is entitled Safety of Pediatric Percutaneous Liver Biopsy Performed by Interventional Radiologists by Potter and colleagues from Ohio State. Data from the United States suggest that pediatric percutaneous liver biopsy is more often being performed by interventional radiologists than by pediatric gastroenterologists, and that in many teaching centers, the numbers of percutaneous biopsies performed during a three-year pediatric GI fellowship is insufficient to train a fellow to be truly proficient in this procedure. At Ohio State in recent years, percutaneous liver biopsies have been performed in interventional radiology under fluoroscopic guidance. These authors looked at the last 249 pediatric liver biopsies done in, inter in interventional radiology, obtaining information on adequacy of samples and complications, and comparing them to existing data in the literature on percutaneous biopsies performed by pediatric gastroenterologists. Oddly, they did not review their own experience with percutaneous biopsies performed by their own pediatric gastroenterologists in the past. In a nutshell, the authors found that ultrasound-guided biopsy by interventional radiology was as safe and effective, but not significantly superior in either respect to blind percutaneous biopsy reported in the literature. I guess this is the wave of the future. If a single teaching center doesn't do enough biopsies to train its fellows and keep the skills of the staff at peak level, perhaps delegating to another provider with more experience and potentially more margin of safety is better for the patient. I asked the lead author of this paper about relative cost, and she stated that her hospital would not permit cost data to be released. I'd venture to guess that interventional radiology is significantly more time-consuming and more expensive. The last article I want to highlight is entitled Evidence-Based Guidelines from Espigen and Naspigen for Helicobacter pylori Infection in Children by Koletsko and colleagues from the H. pylori working groups of both Espigen and Naspigen. This article is an update on previous guidelines on H. pylori diagnosis and treatment in childhood. It's well done and answers a lot of questions on current screening and treatment. It's in my teaching file, and I've already referred to it several times since it came out in preprint form. This concludes the JPGN podcast for August 2011. For more information regarding the contents of this issue or to access the complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the Naspigan website at naspigan.org. JPGN is the official journal of Espigan and Naspigan. The co-editors are Mel Heyman and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Music